You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of John. Here's Nate. Well, in John chapter 14, Jesus is comforting his disciples. And the main reason that he is comforting them is because he had told them in chapter 13, and you, of course, have to remember that this is the night that he's going to be betrayed. This is really his final time and moment of teaching and preparing his disciples. But on that night, he had told them in chapter 13, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. And there was this consternation and questioning from the disciples. Where are you going? Why can't we come? How do we get there? And uh, things like that. And so Peter would ask the question, verse 37 of chapter 13, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And then later in chapter 14, Philip would ask the question, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. And Thomas before him would ask the question, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And so Jesus is comforting his disciples. And here in John chapter 14, beginning now in verse 15, Jesus has a wonderful word of comfort for his disciples regarding the promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so we pick up our study in verse 15 of this 14th chapter of John's gospel. He says to these men, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, a couple of things about this statement from Jesus. I mean, first of all, just at the surface of it, there's an evidence, isn't there? An evidence of our love for Christ. And he says that the evidence of our love for him is adherence to and a keeping of his commandments. Now, the two things I wanted to highlight there from that are, number one, the love that we have for him is demonstrated through and in obedience. What that helps us understand is that obedience and you know discipline and uh, adherence to his commandments, walking in the center of his will, it is best practiced as a love response to Christ. This is why for me, whenever I have an opportunity to disciple someone or strengthen someone in their walk with the Lord, I want to and strive to keep the gospel center to that conversation because I want people to have a deep appreciation for Christ. Because when that deep appreciation for him exists, a love for him exists, then obedience flows from that love. And so I wanted you to see that, number one. But number two, in this statement, if you love me, keep my commandments, it is fascinating that the very next thing that Jesus will enter into is this discussion and teaching on the Holy Spirit. In other words, it is impossible to keep the commandments of God without the Spirit of God working and moving inside of your life. So we'll see that here in chapter 14. We'll see that pictured in chapter 15 with the analogy of the vine and the branches. But here he gets into now 
the next subject of the Holy Spirit. And what a, what a comfort this great doctrine that the Holy Spirit has placed within us is to the believer and would have been to these early disciples. And so it goes like this in verse 16. Jesus continues on and he says, And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. When Jesus asks, the Father responds, of course. And so he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, he says to the disciples, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So here Jesus begins to open up his disciples to the teaching of, the doctrine of, the Holy Spirit of God working and moving in their midst and in their lives. And uh, first of all, you have the description of the Holy Spirit first. He calls him in verse 17, the spirit of truth. But before that, in verse 16, he refers to him as another helper. I'll ask the Father he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Now, according to the book of Ephesians chapter 1, when we place our faith, our trust, our confidence in Christ, then the Spirit of God is placed within us as a down payment, so to speak, a guarantee of our future inheritance. Paul says it this way, Ephesians 1 verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So the, the Holy Spirit placed upon you, uh, within you, sealed you, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, he says, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So, Jesus says this, he will give you the Holy Spirit, and he calls him here in verse 16, another helper. Now, obviously, the Holy Spirit, biblically, is God. He has uh, eternal attributes, is omnipresent, is omnipotent, is omniscient, according to scripture. He is uh, you know, possesses attributes, in other words, that only God can possess. He does things scripturally that only God can do. Job 33, verse 4, Genesis 1, 1 and 2, he was active in creation. Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, he is involved in the authoring of scripture. Romans 8, verse 11, he is involved in regenerating us through the Spirit of God. So, He's active in ways and does things only God can do. So divine attributes, divine activity. And then, of course, he's listed divinely. You know, the grace of Jesus, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3, 14. And you often will see that listing. The Father, Spirit, and Son, or Father, Son, and Spirit. He's listed divinely. You would never see a list that says Father, Son, and Nate Holdrich. I mean, that just doesn't sound right. So he's divinely listed and divinely named as well. Peter referred to him as God in Acts chapter 6. And so, you know, he is God the Spirit. But as well, he, you know, what we need to understand about him is he's a person, the person of the Holy Spirit. He's not an it, an essence, or a force. 
He is the third person of the Trinity. And, you know, this is important for us to understand when it comes to a relationship with him. Biblically, he has intelligence, a will, emotion, uh, like love and jealousy and grief. Uh, he is referred to a he in the New Testament and Old Testament as well. And he, in the New Testament, is lied to, resisted, listened to. He speaks, he teaches, he fellowships with, he guides. So the Holy Spirit of God, just a little primer on who he is. And so Jesus refers to him as another helper. And so here with the disciples, this is the main word of comfort. He's going to help you. Now, this is a fascinating title that Jesus gives to him because the word uh, helper, for one, is a great word. Parakletos, it means to come alongside of, and some translations say that he's another comforter, another advocate. Uh, a Bible I read to my little girls says friend, but the word parakletos, a great phrase for it, or a great translation of it, helper. Just a, you know, able to do whatever is necessary able to aid us in every situation and season of life. Every temptation that you might experience, every trial that you might endure, every ounce of wisdom that you might need, every moment that strength needs to be coursing through your body, the Holy Spirit is able to help us. And Jesus said here in verse 16 that he's another helper. Now, that word another is a fascinating word because in the Greek language, there were there were different words that could be used to say the English word another. We just have our one word, another helper. But one word for it would have meant another of a lesser or different kind and quality. And so Jesus, if he'd have used that word, would have been saying, hey, you know, I'm going to give you another helper. The, the Father will give you another helper of, you know, lesser kind and quality than me, but uh, different but, hey, at least it's help. That's not the word that he chose to use, though. The word another that he used is a word that means another of the same kind and quality. So he's looking at these disciples saying, listen, I know that you're sad that I'm going to depart from you. I know that you're uh, bummed out about this. However, when I depart, I'm going to pray to the Father. He's going to give you another helper, another helper of the same kind and quality to aid you and to strengthen you and to give you, uh, you know, all that you need to do that which I'm asking you to do. And, you know, he would help them in many different ways. He would help them, as we already read, to have a love for him. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He would strengthen them to keep his commandments. And he would help them as well by leading them in the truth. That's what he says in verse 17, that even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. The, the Holy Spirit of God would enable them to pen and write scripture, lead them in the truth of God. And, you know, whereby we have been greatly blessed because we have the apostles doctrine and teaching. And so the spirit of truth would strengthen them to learn uh, the word of God, to write the word of God. And so the, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus said in verse 17 at the very end there he said you know him for he dwells with you and will be 
in you. At this moment in time, when Jesus speaks to them, he had not gone to the cross, had not resurrected. So the Holy Spirit really could only be with them, could not yet reside inside of them. But that day was coming where he would reside within them. And in John 20, verse 22, Jesus breathed on his disciples and said, Receive now the Holy Spirit. Now, beyond just this indwelling of God's Spirit, in Acts 1, verse uh, 8, and also in verse 4, he begins to allude to it. He talks to his disciples before he ascends, after he's breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And he says, wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father that John the Baptist spoke of, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And when he comes upon you, you'll receive power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so, uh, as I'm sure you've heard me say before, if you've listened to you know any amount of teaching from me, uh, I believe that the Holy Spirit of God who comes to live inside of us and live within us at the moment of our conversion, sometimes at the moment of our conversion and sometimes subsequent to our conversion, will also come upon us, which is a totally different relationship than being in us. He says here in verse 17, he dwells with you and will be in you. But in Acts 1, he says he will come upon you. And upon is different than with, and upon is different than in. Upon seems to be directly connected to power for the work of the ministry. In seems to be connected with strength for the everyday spiritual Christian life and having the fruit of the Spirit flowing from our life. So he promises them, comforts them with the truth of the coming of the Holy Spirit of God. Now we move on into the rest of this chapter. I know we majored on that uh, little section, but we move on into verse 18 where Jesus is now going to talk to them of the life that is under submission of the Holy Spirit. And he says in verse 18, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live. You also will live in that day. You will know that I am in my father and you in me and I in you. So one of the great joys and blessings of being submitted to the Lord, keeping his commandments and uh, under the control of the Holy Spirit of God. One of the first great blessings is found in simply one word, just life that we get to live. That's what Jesus said in verse 19. He said, because I live, you also will live. And in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now, I don't think that Jesus is referring at this point to the Holy Spirit any longer. In other words, I don't think what he's saying is, listen, you will not be left as orphans. I will come to you in the form of the Holy Spirit of God. I know that he just had been speaking of the Spirit, but it seems that what he's saying here is, you know, sort of the connection is, Listen, you can't receive the Holy Spirit of God unless I rise from the dead. That's why he said in verse 19, because I live, you also will live. So when he says, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. I think he's referring to his resurrection, not a future second coming, which, which I do hold to and believe, uh, and not a coming of his spirit, but actually his resurrection. And that's, I believe, why he says, 
in verse 19, because I live, you also will live. And when Jesus rose from the dead, what he said in verse 19 really was the style. You know, when he said, the world will see me no more, but you will see me. He appeared to his disciples. He did not appear to the world. He had private appearances. You know, some of them were very public in nature, you know, 500 at one time. But these were people who were devoted to him, people who believed in him. He was not really making himself all that brightly known, so uh, in, in one sense, to the world uh, that they were living in and those who crucified him, rejected him, and all of that. So one great blessing that we have uh, from the Lord is life. We have life because he lives, we live. And of course, this speaks of our future glory, for one, that just as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, if, if Christ is not risen from the dead, then we are of all men the most pitiable because we are still in our sins. But the converse is true. If he has risen from the grave, we are a blessed people. We have future life, eternal life secured for us. But for these disciples and for us, this life meant so much more than just a ticket to eternal life. It meant spiritual vitality today life, being alive. And such life that Jesus describes in verse 20 as, in that day you will know that I'm in the Father and you in me and I in you. You'll be experiencing and knowing the presence and the power of God. Now verse 21, he goes on and he says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And Judas, not Iscariot, which was a uh, very kind little notation from John, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? There's just thinking about this. He's saying, I'm going to manifest myself to you and not to the world. The world will see me no longer. And they want to know, how are you going to do that? And Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. So Jesus makes some very bold proclamations here. He describes love and says in verse 21, if you have my commandments and keep them, he it is who loves me. So obviously, you know, Jesus is not introducing some kind of works religion. You know, the way to receive the love of God or to, you know, earn the love of God is to do all of these wonderful things for him and then he will love you. We understand that you know, we have been placed in the love of Christ if we've been placed in Christ. We dwell in that sphere. But he, you know, is saying, listen, when you have my commandments and keep them, you're demonstrating. He says, he it is who loves me. I think it's very similar to the faith of Abraham. You might remember Abraham's life. He received the promises of God upon his life in some very significant ways. It tells us in Genesis 15 that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He was justified by faith, not justified uh, in the sense of receiving righteousness by 
works. But as James said in James chapter 2, he said, Well, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. So what you have with Abraham is you have a man who believed God, God accounted it to him for righteousness, but years later when God approached him and said, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and offer him on the mount which I will show you. When Abraham took his son and took that wood and fire and climbed Mount Moriah and became willing in his heart to sacrifice his son, knowing the whole time that God would raise him from the dead if he had to go through with this process of sacrificing his son to God. He, as he went through all of that, what was he doing? He was by his works demonstrating a faith that existed deep within. As it says in the Gospels, when Jesus uh, was teaching in a house in Capernaum and men came and brought a paralytic man, broke open the roof and lowered this man down to Jesus. It says that Jesus saw their faith. He looked at these men who had brought this man and their willingness to break open the roof and he saw their faith. There was faith inside of them, but as they did things, that faith was exemplified. So here, I think in the same way, when we say, you know, I love God, I love Christ, well, the way that that love is lived out and exemplified is by the keeping of his commandments. That's how you can determine a person who truly loves the Lord. But then Jesus goes on in verse 21 and really reiterates this kind of idea in the rest of this text when he says, he who loves me will be loved by my father and I'll love him and manifest myself to him. And then in verse 23, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. So when Jesus says this, is he saying, hey, look, you obey me and then and only then will I and the father love you. But before that, we're kind of wondering whether we should love you or not and we're holding out we're withholding our love from you but once you obey then the love will flow and you know obviously john three sixteen, god loved, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son we in one sense mankind is under the love of god the grace uh his compassion mercy his benevolence towards all of the world uh in one sense, we're all under the jurisdiction of the love of God. And then when you place your faith in Christ, you are placed into Christ and you dwell positionally inside of the love of God. But I think what Jesus is referring to here is the practical experience of the love of God. When I was a child, my parents' generation used to say to live under the spout where the glory or the blessings come out to live under the spout where the blessings come out and i didn't really didn't understand that for much of my life until i realized that what they were saying was something very simple and i think what jesus is communicating here it's so good to live a life of obedience because when you do you're putting yourself in a position where god has already predetermined you will be able to practically experience his 
blessing, his love, his grace upon your life. You have it elsewhere positionally, but you aren't experiencing it elsewhere practically. So Jesus is saying, listen, guys, obey me, follow me, and you're going to experience the radical love of God upon your life. Now, verse 25, he goes on and he says, these things I've spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, this was a wonderful promise, uh, specifically and mostly for the disciples. Uh, they would be the ones who would uh, communicate the Old Testament to the early church and give what was called the Apostles' Doctrine, the Apostles' Teaching. They were going to be the primary feeders there for the first and early church. And Jesus would pray that we would be connected to their doctrine. And of course, some of them would actually be responsible for penning Scripture. So Jesus is giving a promise to them that, you know, the Holy Spirit, he'll teach you all things and he'll bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Have you ever wondered? How did they remember these great teachings from Christ? How did they remember all of these events? And how did they choose which events to record and which ones not to record? Well, it was the Holy Spirit involved with them. Peace, verse 27, I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now, verse 27, Jesus introduces to them as well the peace of Christ. And not just a peace uh, that is, you know, some kind of greeting, you know, peace, brother. But he says, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. The world has a weak version of peace. Uh, the world strives for peace and strives for rest, but never finds it. I heard once that you can directly measure the stress in a nation uh, by the amount of time-saving devices that nation has access to. The more devices and technology a nation has to save time, the more stress will come into their Lives And Jesus has for every believer in every age a version of peace that is so strong and so good, which comes through walking with him. And then Jesus said, listen, you guys would have rejoiced uh, that I'm going back to glory if you truly love me, that I get to go back to my exalted state with the Father. And now, verse 29, I have told you before it takes place so that when it does, you may uh, believe and I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has no claim on me. And he has no claim on anyone in Christ as well. Wonderful victory is ours in Christ. But I do, verse 31, as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. And so concludes the 14th chapter of John's Gospel. God bless you, and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.